like to welcome everybody here uh, to this lecture. Uh, I'm Julian Legrand, who will be chairing the event. Uh, we'd like to extend a particular welcome to those of you from outside the LSE uh, who have joined us here today, but also uh, very pleased to see uh, those of us from inside the LSE. And our most special welcome to Michael Sandel, uh, who is the uh, Anne T. and Robert Bass Professor of Government at Harvard University. Uh, he's uh, got a very distinguished career, author of various books, uh, The Liberalism and the Limits of Justice, Democracy's Discontent. Uh, his course on which the book, uh, which he about, which he will be talking today, the course in which he's, uh, this book is based, is called Justice, uh, and it's enrolled over 14,000 students, I believe, uh, over the years. Um, he's a recipient of the Harvard Radcliffe Phi Beta Kappa Teaching Prize, he was a Harvard uh, professor from 1999, uh, and in 2008 he was recognized by the American Political Science Association for a career of excellence in teaching. Uh, over this side of the Atlantic, he has, of course, been the Reef Lecturer uh, this year. All of this, of course, pales uh, entirely, um, uh, pales beside his real claim to fame, which is that he's actually um, believed to be a model for the nuclear power magnate Montgomery Burns and the Simpsons. Uh, <laughs> And um, he didn't promise us to give us a, a little a rendition from The Simpsons today. However, he is going to start us off with um, a short DVD. So I think probably on that note, uh, I will hand over to the DVD, followed by Professor Sandberg. Thank you. Thank you. the right thing to do? That's a question I've asked thousands of students at Harvard University in my class, Justice. Would it be just to torture the suspect to get the information? Do you think that a person with a bad parent owes them less? Is it alright to steal a drug that your, your child needs to survive? My name is Michael Sandel, and over the years, thousands of students have joined me for an ongoing debate about the moral decisions we face in our everyday lives. This is a course about justice, and we begin with a story. Suppose you're the driver of a trolley car. Nikolai, if you didn't think you'd get caught, would you pay your taxes? Um, <laughs> I don't think so. Do I think I should be able to bid for a baby? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's a market. I mean, in a situation that desperate, you have to do what you have to do to survive. Um, you have to do what you have to do. You have got to do what you got to do. What do you say to markets? I've never been in a class like this before, when they kind of ask you to 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 really think and consider the the moral dilemma. I've never had such a fun class in my life, you know? We turn to the great philosophers of our past for answers. Do you think Bentham is wrong to add up the collective happiness? 
I don't think he's wrong, but I think Murphy's murder in any case. Well, then Bentham has to be wrong. If you're right, he's wrong. Okay, he's wrong. All right. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Well done. And we turn to the present to challenge the reasoning behind the moral choices we make every day. I think that what happened in the past has no bearing on what happens today, and I think that discriminating based on race should always be wrong. I just want to say that white people have had their own affirmative action in this country for more than 400 years. It's called nepotism and quid pro quo. So there's nothing wrong with correcting the injustice and discrimination that's been done to black people for 400 years. Even effort depends a lot on fortunate family circumstances for which we can claim no credit. Raise your hand, those of you here who are first in birth order. I am too, by the way. Mike, I noticed you raised your hand. Taking justice was really an eye-opening experience for me. Everything that you've thought of up to that point becomes questioned, becomes challenged. The purpose of sex is, one, for its procreative uses, and two, for a unifying purpose between a man and a woman. Your beliefs are your beliefs, and that's fine. But civil union is not marriage within the Catholic Church. What is the right thing to do? People have been arguing for millennia, really, and there's still not one definite answer. In ways, that makes philosophy impossible, but it makes it beautiful at the same time that we're still debating similar questions. And the reason they're unavoidable, the reason they're inescapable, is that we live some answer to these questions every day. And now, I have the chance to invite you to join us as Harvard opens its classroom to the world. Well, thank you very much for that warm welcome and those kind words of introduction. What you've just seen is actually a short preview of a public television version of the course in the book. It's all by way of an experiment to open access to the classroom and to see whether the topics and the themes that are debated by political philosophers and by students of political philosophy can begin, maybe in some small way, to find their way into public discourse and democratic deliberation. That's really the goal of the book, which is meant to be accessible and inviting, not only to students of political philosophy, but also to citizens generally who care about these questions and would like to think about them. Let me summarize the theme of the book, and then I would like to put to you some questions that have to do with the connection between justice and the moral limits of markets. Now, it's often thought, I wonder if I use this, I can walk a bit. It's often, most of our debates about justice revolve around two familiar considerations. One of them 
is a conception of justice that says justice means promoting the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people, the utilitarian idea of justice, promoting the general welfare. And then there's a rival conception of justice that gets a lot of attention these days in the academy but also in public debate that says maximizing utility or the general welfare isn't the only thing that matters morally. There is also the matter of respecting freedom and in particular the freedom of individuals to pursue their own happiness, their own conceptions of the good. Respect for freedom and individual choice is a powerfully influential second strand of contemporary debate about justice. And a lot of the arguments within political philosophy and abroad in the world in our politics is an argument between utilitarian theories of justice and what we might broadly call freedom-based theories of justice. Now, it's also true that some of our debates take place within what is a fairly expansive freedom camp. There are those who interpret freedom to mean respecting the outcomes of the choices people make and the exchanges they make in market economies. They tend to be advocates of laissez-faire free market principles. Let the results of the market lie where, lie where they fall. There are other advocates of a freedom-based theory of justice who are not libertarians, who are not advocates of laissez-faire uh, market approaches to justice, but who think that true freedom requires choice against a background of fair conditions. So for the second strand of the freedom school, in order really to respect free individual choice, it's not necessarily simply to have a market economy, however free. It's not simply enough to valorize a free choice, free exchange in the market, but the choices only realize freedom if they're made against the background of enough equality of condition and equality of opportunity so that people's choices are not in effect coerced by economic necessity. So these are the familiar debates, the utilitarian one, the freedom one with the two different strands of the freedom view. The first strand of the freedom view informs laissez-faire views, the second, broadly speaking, liberal egalitarian or liberal welfare state views. Those are important traditions, those dominant and influential ones. The argument of the book is that they don't fully capture what justice is about, and they, don't even, they aren't even adequate to make sense of the debates about justice that we actually have. Instead, we need to take account of a third understanding of justice, a third tradition, which goes beyond utility and beyond freedom to take up the question of virtue, moral desert, and the meaning of the good life. Now, this third understanding of justice is in some way to, to try to revive or emphasize or point to this third tradition 
is these days in some ways to lean against the grain of the dominant assumptions underlying our politics. And that's what I try to do in the book, to suggest that we can't give an adequate account of justice, not in economic life, also not when we deal with contested cultural questions in politics and social questions, without acknowledging the importance of what we might call the virtue or dessert-based or a conception of justice that draws on and invites into politics competing conceptions of the common good, of civic virtue, and of the good life. Although it's less familiar, this third strand, in contemporary debate, it goes back at least to Aristotle's politics. Aristotle defined justice, roughly speaking, as giving people what they deserve he recognized what is undoubtedly the case that the hard questions begin when, it, when we start arguing about who deserves what and why. Aristotle's answer to that question is it depends on the good that's being distributed. He begins with the example of flutes. You may remember, those of you who have read the politics of Aristotle, how sh if we had some flutes to distribute, how should we decide who should get the best ones? And his answer is the best flutes should go to the best flute players. And you might say that's a perfectly reasonable utilitarian idea. If the best musicians have the best flutes, they will make better music and we'll all be better off. But that's not Aristotle's reason. Aristotle's reason for giving the best flutes to the best musicians is that's what flutes are for, to be played well. The greatest musicians are best able to realize the purpose, the nature of a flute. Closely connected to this idea of dessert is a certain idea of virtue and of honor and of recognition. Part of the point of musical performance is not simply to create pleasing sounds. It's also to honor and recognize the virtue of being a great musician. And so the claim of desert has not only to do with the contribution to the general welfare, but also to do with realizing the purpose, which purpose is closely connected to honoring, rewarding, recognizing the virtue of being a great musician. Now, most of our debates these days don't have to do with distributing things like flutes, but with other more complex goods and opportunities. But what I would like to suggest, and we'll see in the discussion whether you think this is completely wrong-headed or not, is that the debates we have about distributive justice these days do rest, often implicitly, on this third idea this Aristotelian idea that justice does have something to do with giving people what they deserve in accordance with their virtue, and it's connected somehow with deciding what virtues, what goods are worthy of honor and recognition. Take, for example, the recent public debate about bailouts and bonuses in the wake of the financial crisis. There was, not surprisingly, considerable reluctance when government officials, treasury officials came to the public in the US and in the UK and said we have to bail out 
the Wall Street firms and the banks and the hedge funds who pose a systemic risk. People said that's not fair. That's what the hesitation was about. There's something unjust about ordinary taxpayers having to subsidize financial institutions, very wealthy people who took, in many cases, risky, reckless gambles and now not only wrecked their companies, but put the entire world financial system at risk. Where is the fairness in that? What was the reply? Well, the reply was, yes, it's a bad thing, but we've just got to do it. We've got to do it because if we don't, the whole system may melt down and everyone will be worse off. So it was a straightforward utilitarian argument made with considerable urgency by politicians, the political establishment, treasury officials, and the like. In fact, it was sometimes said when the public hesitated, fairness is off the table right now. You remember hearing something like that? We can't be bothered with that at the moment because the whole system is in peril and you will regret it if we don't. So set aside fairness, set aside those moral qualms, and we just have to do it. And the bailouts went ahead. And then the bonuses came and that generated another round of outrage. What was that outrage about? Outrage actually is interesting as a political phenomenon, also as a moral one. Outrage is anger, but not just any kind of anger. It's anger at injustice. And so it's worthwhile attending, I think, to outrage and parsing it, trying to make sense of its source. In a lot of the discussion at the time of the bailout, politicians and commentators who thought of themselves as serious, responsible types said, I hope we're beyond the point of this populist rage, they called it. Populist rage. It was an inconvenient intrusion by the general public into what they saw as a necessity, a sober policy that had to be undertaken. But so-called populist rage, it was a kind of outrage that actually, I think, persists. And it had a point, a legitimate point. To make sense of what the point was, I think we have to have recourse to something like this third conception of justice. Why was it unjust? Not only because the beneficiaries were wealthy and those who were paying the subsidies were less wealthy. That would be a matter of straightforward fairness. There was a deeper moral intuition at work, I think, of the following kind. The people who are getting those bailouts and receiving those bonuses are getting something they don't deserve. Why do they not deserve them? Well, for one thing, they behaved recklessly and created enormous havoc. More than that, the argument often went, or the intuition did, they're greedy anyhow, these people. And greed is a vice. Here I'm just playing out the intuition, I think, lying behind the popular anger. Greed is a vice that should not be rewarded. If anything, it should be punished and discouraged. 
Now, insofar as this moral intuition about they don't deserve it, and in any case they were reckless and even greedy, that moral intuition makes sense of part of the response, the sense of injustice. But it only makes sense if, and it's only plausible, if you accept something like what I've called this third Aristotelian account, that justice does have something, even today, though we don't normally articulate it, justice has something to do with giving people what they deserve in accordance with their virtue. Now, there was an interesting feature of the response by the bankers and Wall Street CEOs to the withering critique. By the way, as empirical support for my hunch, this interpretive reconstruction of what the moral intuition was all about, I was in an airport in the midst of the bonuses AIG was paying out to the very division that had created these risky financial instruments. And I saw one of the tabloids, the New York Post, and it had a full-page headline saying, not so fast, you greedy bastards. <laughs> that was an indecorous Aristotelian headline, that. The bankers, what did they say when they were called? Some of them were called before Congress. Maybe you had similar scenes here in the public debate. They were questioned and they said, you know, it wasn't really our fault what happened. Many of them said that. The head of one uh, Wall Street firm testifying before Congress said, we were the victims of a financial tsunami. And you heard that phrase during the whole discussion of the bailout. Victims of a financial tsunami. There was nothing we could have done. We were the victims of economic forces bigger than us beyond our control. We did all we could, which if true, strictly speaking, would suggest what they were suggesting. We're not to blame. You're not to blame if you're hit by a tsunami. Now that's an interesting response from the standpoint of justice and what people deserve, if you think about it. Now, unfortunately, the congressmen and women who didn't think of the, this natural follow-on question. But if I were sitting behind them and passing them notes about follow-on questions, I would have been tempted to suggest that they ask the executives this. If, when things go very badly in the financial market, you already know what question I'm going to suggest. That these things are due to bigger systemic forces, economic forces beyond your control, and therefore you don't deserve blame. Suppose you're right about that. Doesn't that suggest that back a few years ago, when times were very good, and you were reaping enormous bonuses, not from the taxpayers, but from the financial markets doing very well, stock market soaring, And might it be the case that that too was due to systemic forces, big economic forces, not of your own doing or making? After all, this was a period of the globalization of financial markets, the advent of the internet, the rise of the 
of the housing market bubble, all sorts of things that were not the doing of the people who reaped the benefits, non-taxpayer subsidized benefits. So if you're not responsible for the market collapse when the financial tsunami hits, are you really responsible for the stupendous gains that took place when the sun was shining? If the weather is to blame now, what about when the weather was good? And if that's the case, then doesn't the very defense that the bankers and CEOs made about their lack of control suggest that the bounty that markets, financial markets, but other markets, bestow on those who happen to be running the companies or trading on the floor are also not morally deserved, not a matter of moral entitlement. Anyhow, that's the follow-up question I would have asked. I'm not sure what, how, what they would have answered. But uh, what, what it suggests is that the debate we've had over the bailouts, if you think about the broader questions of justice that the discourse raises, it has more far-reaching implications than we have discussed so far. It's not, of course, there's agreement that there has to be greater degree of regulation. But regulation alone doesn't reach or respond to the full import, the full moral import, the full import from the standpoint of justice that the uh, financial collapse and the bailout and the bonuses raise. So that's one way in which it's very difficult to make sense of a contemporary argument about just and unjust rewards, bailouts and bonuses, without leaning on something like the idea that justice is a matter of desert that rewards virtue. And then we debate what are the relevant virtues and what exactly is the moral claim not only of bankers and Wall Street CEOs, but of any of us, to the bounty that markets bestow on the talents and skills and activities that we happen to have or be capable of. It's a broad question of justice. Now, what I would like to do is put to you a question about the moral limits of markets. Because one of the advantages, I think, of bringing out the importance of this third tradition of justice, the one that attends directly to conceptions of the good and of virtue and of moral desert. One reason it seems to me important is that in thinking about markets and the role of markets, it directs our attention to questions that go beyond fairness, a fair allocation through the tax system, redistributive taxation, and so on, of the results that markets produce. If all that mattered from the standpoint of justice for markets was how do we balance increasing GDP, 
a utilitarian concern broadly, with fair distribution, we could probably have much of that debate within terms of the utilitarian versus the freedom-based theory of justice. But there's a second question about markets and the moral status of markets that goes beyond fairness and distributive justice. And that's the question of what goods and what social practices should be governed by markets, by market valuation and exchanges. Part of what's happened, I think, over roughly speaking the last three decades, the period we associate with recent globalization, is not just that there's been a great um, run-up in stock markets and in housing markets and in the financial markets, and then a collapse. It's also that markets and market-oriented thinking have extended their reach and influence into spheres of life traditionally governed by non-market norms. So there's been a rampant commodification of a great many spheres of social life during the heady period of market triumphalism, the period going back to the Reagan and Thatcher period, but a period that really continued, moderated, but consolidated during the Clinton-Blair years. It isn't just that there was deregulation, though there was certainly that. It's also that without much public notice, and certainly with very little public deliberation, market practices extended into spheres of life and into the uh, treatment and allocation of goods traditionally governed by non-market norms. Here's one example. It's now the case that there are more private military contractors fighting in Iraq than there are U.S. military troops. And the same is true in Afghanistan. This is a radical change from the way in recent history wars have been fought. The outsourcing of war to private companies. Now, there was never a, an explicit political debate or democratic debate about whether we wanted to outsource war to private companies, whether we wanted markets to allocate essentially military functions and services. And yet, it seemed almost a piece with the general drift to market orientation. We've also, during the same period, seen the, seen the rise of for-profit schools, for-profit prisons, for-profit hospitals, and the extension of markets into a great many spheres of life. I, here's the question I would like to put to you to see what you think about it and then see if we can extract the the moral of the story, the implications for this broader question of justice and the moral limits of markets. Let me put to you the following case and see what people have to say. A few, some years ago, after 9-11, an agency of the U.S. Defense Department launched an experiment online. It became known as the Terrorist Futures Market. Did any of you hear about that? It was trying to draw on 
there's a recent great interest in what's sometimes called the wisdom of crowds. The idea was that people who thought they could predict when and where a major terrorist attack would occur could go online on a government website and place a bet that the attack would occur at a given time and place. They could also do it with other catastrophic events like the assassination of a foreign leader. So if you had a hunch or maybe some information that you were confident enough about to place a bet, the theory is that this would collectively generate better intelligence than the CIA could generate on its own. That was the theory. Now, there's a lot of debate among economists and game theorists about whether that actually works. But let's suppose for the sake of argument that the government would glean some useful information by having the terrorist futures market. I should say that when word became known that this venture was being launched, it generated a firestorm of protest by politicians, members of Congress, and it was withdrawn. But many economists have written since that this was an irrational impulse, and if it would generate useful information, why shrink from it? So I'd like to see what the range of opinion is on the terrorist future market case in the room. How many of you find the idea of a terrorist futures market morally objectionable? Raise your hand. And how many don't? How many think that if it did provide useful information, it should go forward? So it's an interesting division of opinion. I'm not sure exactly who has the majority. Maybe those who would permit it. Roughly even. So that's a good place for us to start. We have stewards with handheld microphones, highly trained volunteers who will come to you. And what I would like to – I would first like to hear from someone who objects, who finds it morally objectionable to have a terrorist futures market. Raise your hand. Someone who is prepared to give his or her reasons, grounds for objecting. Why does it bother you? Why do you think it's morally troubling? Yes, down here. I'll go and then if I have to. Basically, you can think of the way in which a market manufactures desires or needs that weren't there in the first place. For example, you wouldn't necessarily predict that one could require a dozen different shades of pink lipstick. So my worry is that you can actually, by some kind of positive feedback mechanism, actually create a scenario which wasn't there to begin with. And your initial bet might be highly speculative and arbitrary and might just generate an interest which isn't there in the first place. And so is the worry – and tell us your name. What's your name? Shara Ali. Shara, would you say that – is the worry that the people who place the bets will begin rooting for the disaster they've – There doesn't seem to be any principled rational basis between 
or correlation between uh, the bet that's placed and the actual likelihood of it happening. It, it isn't actually, it's a bit like saying that um, um, if somebody looks suspicious because they've looked the police officer in the eye, well, the opposite could be true, which is that they avoided eye contact. Yes. There's actually no uh, rational basis, I think, to make a bet on such an important question. All right, but, but suppose, suppose that collectively it would generate useful information. There's the feeling that this is somehow morally troubling. Who else? Yeah? All right, you're not. All right, so you can speak in reply. But who among those who find it morally objectionable, why exactly? Go ahead. In the, in the middle. Right, go ahead. Yeah, so it's, done, it's not a decent way to uh, talk about people. I wouldn't place a bet on you dying tomorrow and, you know, as a way of sharing information with my friends. It's just you wouldn't place a bet on me dying tomorrow. <laughs> no. Thank you. Thank you. For <laughs> is it that's because I look fit or you just, or because, no, yeah, because you, in principle, you wouldn't do that. It wouldn't be decent. It wouldn't be a decent way of relating to you as a human being. And yeah. it's even worse if you relate to your you know, fellow citizens or whatever it's in, in the respect of a terrorist attack. Right, right. Okay, and what's your name? David Voxland. David? Voxland, yeah. All right, let's see now someone on the other side. How do you reply to David's worry that this is not a decent way to relate to one's fellow citizens or to people even halfway around the world? to bet on something awful happening to them. What do, you, what do you say to that? How would you reply? Okay, uh, yeah, down, uh, someone near the microphone, go ahead. Well, um, in, re in reply to David, um, I would just say that's, you know, we, well, we're assuming that it would you know, work and help to save lives. Right. Uh, so, you know, that that's an assumption that we're making. But in response to David, I mean, it's not a decent thing to do, but I think that's kind of what life insurance companies do anyways, Good. or, you know, insurance companies, they, like, right. they have all these probabilities, and, you know, it, that's what they do to make money. So I, I, I think it is an... That's interesting. Okay and what's your name? When? When? Yeah. All right, when you raise the case of life insurance, actually, well, keep the microphone, when just for a minute. When I take out life insurance, a life insurance policy, or when my family takes one out on me, <laughs> is, let's say, when my wife takes one out on me, she's... Uh, She's not hoping that her gamble will win, her bet that her bet will win, right? Right. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you think, and the, the insurance company actually is rooting for me to live longer. They'll make more money if I live longer. What about that, Wim? Whereas well, here I'm rooting for that assassination to take place as soon as possible, from a financial point of view, of course. I don't mean... No. Yeah, but I don't... I wouldn't say that they're rooting for, you know, for the assassination. 
for the terrorist attack to happen. They're just, you know, placing... It's a small bet. Yeah, it's a small bet. But what if it were a bigger bet? Well, I mean, that would be... The morally objectionable part would be them rooting for the assassination to happen, not for them to be placing a bet on it. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Yes. Go ahead. I think betting as such itself is extremely risky. Something as... Like, in sports, you've seen that people can go to any extent to fix a match. And when money is involved, especially huge sums of money involved, drastic measures are taken to recover that. So if someone has placed a bet for, you know, something to blow up or a terrorist attack to happen, the chances of that attack happening are much more than what it would be otherwise. Because they might go out and foment it. Yes. Well, right. So we would have an added enforcement problem. Though maybe the people who placed the bets could be identified and we could keep an eye on them to make sure they didn't try to make their bet come true. But then isn't that increasing the work for security forces to begin with when you have something put up on the website? Right. Okay. Fair enough. Then it depends how much good information you get. Is it worth all these extra people looking after the gamblers? That's good. That's good. All right. You had a view. Go ahead. Hang on a minute. Hang on to the microphone. Assuming that it provides us with useful information, I don't see a problem with it from a utilitarian point of view or from a libertarian point of view. Because from a utilitarian perspective, it is increasing our utility as a whole. Yes. And from a freedom point of view of justice, I'm not violating anyone's rights when I'm providing that information. Right. And also, it is my right to place a bet. All right. Let me – it's interesting. And you've analyzed it very well from the standpoint of the first two traditions. And I agree with you, which is why I'm using this example to see whether we need the third tradition to explain the moral intuition. Some people have, at least, that there's something slightly morally creepy about it. But let me – but you've made a strong case. Tell us your name. Asif. Asif. Asu? Asif. Asif. Asif, tell me – let me offer you a slightly different version of this, not the terrorist futures market. There is a game on the Internet called Death Pools. Have you ever heard of that? No, I haven't. Has anybody? Death Pool. You know what they are? Yes, exactly. You're familiar with this. It's an Internet game where you can bet on when celebrities will die. It's nothing to do with predicting a terrorist attack. And the way it works, I think, but you'll tell us if this is right or not. You submit a list of ten people whom you predict will die by the end of the year. And you put in a certain amount of money. And whoever hits the most correct guesses at the end of the year wins the pot of money. Death Pools. Now, work that through the two theories you just applied to the terrorist futures market. Well, first, what do you think about Death Pools? Are they morally objectionable? It is technically not morally objectionable, I think, in my personal opinion. But although I can see why some people might have a problem with it, it's like saying – But you don't have a problem. I don't have a problem. Yeah, it's like saying – It's like saying that these teams will lose these matches in this 
uh, football season. Well, it's a little. <laughs> it's a little more than that. <laughs> no. Uh, who objects? Who can explain? Who, who objects to death pools and can say what they see? Object, find objectionable. Yes. I think it's slightly weird that no one has said directly that what we're talking about is benefiting from harm being done to someone else. And I think there's a real like the death pool case is obviously interesting because it distills that point where it's not a kind of there are no other interests involved. It's not a kind of zero sum equation. You're not on a life raft and it's your life or someone else's. Right. You're actually just directly benefiting yeah. freely with no cost yourself from harm done to someone else. Right. And I think that's morally objectionable. Right. Even if you didn't play a causal role. Even if you didn't play a causal role, which is an important qualifier, of course. In what's your name? Charlotte. Charlotte. Now, play out Charlotte. Keep, keep the microphone for one moment, Charlotte. Um, Asif did the analysis from the the from the standpoint of utilitarianism and also freedom and rights with respect to the terrorist futures market. Would you agree that in the case of death pools, if some people enjoy it, they derive some pleasure, some entertainment value from it, um, and they don't violate anybody's rights, the celebrities don't know unless they go online, I suppose, who's betting on their early demise. So no rights are being violated. Utility is increasing. So on either of those theories of justice or morality, how would you, well, or how, how would you respond to that? Well, I think morality is from legality. I think you have to weigh, you have to weigh the kind of the losses that are being incurred. And maybe there are no real losses being incurred. If, you know, if a random celebrity dies, they're not suffering in any way apart from the most abstract way that maybe they're sort of as a human being is being infringed in someone's mind or in the minds of the people who are hmm. reading this website. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's illegal, but I do think it's the people who are gaining pleasure from the death of someone else just for the, a monetary gain are culpable. Right, it's interesting. And so it's morally objection according to Charlotte's analysis because the, the source of the objection, this is very interesting, it's not that the celebrities' rights are being violated. And it may even be that the utility is going up if people get pleasure from this, if they find it terribly amusing to do that. But somehow, it's a bad kind of... There's something creepy about the pleasure someone takes in gambling on and then maybe hoping for someone to die, even if they do nothing to hasten the death. And so would you say... Well, there's something what, vicious about that, or at least disgusting, or it's not a good way to be, or, I mean, we're in, yeah, I'm trying to find the language, but it seems if we follow Charlotte's moral intuition, which I think is why, it must be why those who find it objectionable do find it objectionable, that it takes us onto the terrain of what is a good way to be or the proper way to value a human life, um, maybe the people do, would you go so far as to say they have bad character the people who go in for oh, that I think it's on da you're on dangerous ground there because the celebrity is not going to be affected in any way but if you right. are 
thinking in that way, chances are you're going to be interacting with a lot of people in your daily life. And I think that, you know, I wouldn't say you, it will spread necessarily. You know, I don't believe that people who play video games become violent. But right. I think it's a dangerous kind of reasoning to start. And disagreeable in itself, even if it doesn't spread? Yes. Okay, good, thanks. Well, I, I think, now these are, this isn't something that admits of knockdown proof, but I think what Charlotte has just articulated as a moral objection to the, the death pool is a purer case than the terrorist futures market because there is no redeeming good. There are no lives being saved. It's sheer amusement. So in a way it isolates the moral objection if there is a moral objection, and I think what Charlotte has articulated draws unavoidably on this third category of consideration having to do with the quality of character, the virtue or vice involved in this practice, the proper way of valuing human life somehow here is being violated. Let's put aside death pools and terrorist futures market. One other, I find, very intriguing proposal for the use of markets to solve a global problem, the refugee crisis. There are those who have proposed, there, there are more refugees than there are homes, places to take them. And so it's been proposed that one way to increase the number of refugees accepted would be to have a global convention where the countries of the world agree to certain refugee quotas, country by country, presumably on the basis of wealth. But in order to persuade the countries to accept a higher quota than they otherwise would, since many countries don't want to take too many refugees, including a number of wealthy ones, you say, once you have your refugee quota, each country will be able to buy and sell those quotas. So let's take, for example, Japan. Japan is a wealthy country, would have, let's say, a, a quota of 20,000. But it would be given the right, if they didn't want to take 20,000 refugees, to pay Poland, let's say, or Uganda to take them. Now, the exchanges would be purely voluntary between countries, so there would be a market in tradable refugee quotas. Suppose, for the sake of argument, as the proponents suggest, that a market in tradable refugee quotas would increase the number of refugees that countries would collectively agree uh, to provide homes for. Would it be objectionable or would it be a good use of the market? How many would find it objectionable? And how many would support it? How many would? All right, let's quickly hear from someone who finds it objectionable. What would be the reason here? Go ahead. First off, there's something very creepy about trading people. Something very creepy about trading people. Especially people who are presumably from a poor background uh, in a distant part of the world that are coming as refugees. I mean, that would be the major one. But then th they would, it also kind of cause perverse incentives for like rich countries that don't want refugees just to send them off to Togo. You know, that's if rich countries send them off to other countries, yeah. but pay the other countries. Pay the other countries. 
and wind up giving homes for these refugees. Yeah, you're still offloading the responsibility. You're offloading a responsibility. And then the creepiness. Tell us more about the creepiness. What does that mean? No, I just, I think that in the recent past, there has been slavery in the world, and these countries, and mainly, like, yeah, to be trading people from one country to the next, trading poor people who are displaced from their homes from one country to the next, even if it's not strictly that. It just rankles me. It rankles you. It's interesting, the language of creepiness and being rankled. That's interesting. All right. And they're offloading, the countries are offloading a responsibility. Yeah, that's a potential, and not all the countries will. Right. Some might take them in. What's your name? I'm Brian. Brian? Ready, yeah. Okay. Who what do you say? Something against Brian. That's right. That's what we want. Go ahead. I think that's exactly where the moral intuition goes wrong. Uh, the trade is not about trading people, but it's a way to organize a market for where people live. So, um, in a way, it is comparable to a market for uh, apartments in London. It's just a way to allocate where people live. It's like a market for apartments in London? Wherever. And there's nothing creepy about that. <laughs> Depends on the apartment, I suppose. There's at least it's nothing more objectionable. It's a market like any other. Yes, what do you say? Yes, go ahead. I mean, um, who initially causes the conflict doesn't necessarily matter, I assume. And we simply presume that uh, we actually don't want these people at all. That even if, just a recent example, even if the U.S. Un I mean, underwrites the international law and bombs Iraq. Still, the U.S. can get away with not accepting Iraqi refugees. But this would be a subject to the agreement. It would be legal and understood to be permissible to have this market, just as it's permissible to have a market in London apartments. Yeah, what, well, what would be wrong with that? What would be wrong with that is that it is people that we're not, we're not we literally say, that, okay, we don't want you. So it is basically ranking of races, nationalities, geographical backgrounds, or I don't know, wealth. If that is. All right. Is. Let's see. What, what, there's a. Do you have a reply? In the back, right? Go ahead. A reply. Just another point on this side. It's the idea of paying to get out of your universal obligation. The idea of refugees is that we all have an equal universal obligation to look after them, and if you start paying to opt out of that, that's what I think agreement with Brian, that's what really feels uncomfortable. And so you're saying that the uh, what's being commodified here is not the people. It's the obligation. It's the obligation to look after them, to provide them asylum. Uh, all right, who has a reply to these objections? R right in the back row. Right. Um, unless I missed something at the start, I see two, two conditions that would make it okay, in my opinion. One, if the people who are who are leaving the country actually sign up to this and say, okay. Could you speak up a little bit? I don't know if that's working. Yeah, sure. If one, the no, no, speak into the microphone. But, uh, sorry. <laughs> if w one, the people who are actually the refugees are okay with this, they consent to it. And if two, they end up in a country with better opportunities, which will provide them a better life than they have at home, then I see no objection to it. Okay, in the back row, the woman in the back. 
I think that there are cases that refugees can be treated very badly anyway. So if this system was implemented properly, it could almost be empowering. Um, and if countries were to take responsibility in the way when you trade carbon permits, it's actually often making sure that things are implemented properly and countries taking responsibility for carbon abatement. This could be, you know, as long as it's not that the money then gets used for corrupt means, then it could actually end up with kind of a better home for the refugees. How do you, what's your name? Anna. Anna, how do you answer Brian's suggestion that there's something creepy about it? Do you find it creepy? The thing is that markets actually often do determine where do the refugees end up. You know, we've had this issue at Calais where there were all these refugees with nowhere to go and they were in appalling conditions. And that's presumably because countries are saying we don't have the resources to house you. So that is a market-driven force. If you can find a way of allocating people somewhere where there are resources for them, then that's better than them having nowhere to go. So the refugees themselves will be better off. I think they could be, but I think it's to do with the implementation of the system. You know, whether the people are treated like commodities or whether they're treated like human beings. Uh -huh. So one worry may be that by using the market mechanism, it might lead to the countries who are, it might lead to some countries seeing refugees as opportunities for revenue rather than as human beings in need of care. That would be one worry. Okay, one, let's see if we can take one more and then try to, all right, go ahead. Hang on a moment. Uh, I think we're missing uh, the most important point, and, and that's, uh, but it's, it also has to do with the refugees being better off. Uh, we're talking, if a country does not want to take refugees, in today's world, it does not take refugees. In that world, the country would have to, at least have to pay another country to take these refugees. So if the regulation is right and these other countries cannot uh, too easily make money with them, uh, the refugees are definitely better off. Do you have a reply to that? Do you have a reply? Go ahead, quickly, yeah. Yeah, to me, it, it bothers me that, that countries would make profit from from people in the same way that it would bother me if an orphanage would produce revenue from the work of the orphans without giving it back to the orphans. I see. Um, so for me, it would be it would be perfectly acceptable provided that the the revenue that came from selling these um, whatever the packets of allotments or whatever. Right, the quotas. The quotas. The revenue, for me, if that went back into making houses or if that went into providing food, right. then it's perfectly fine. It's, right. it's creepy if they take profit from it. All right. Although that presumably removes the incentive of the other country to take them well, for the money. Somewhat it does, but it also negates the argument of we don't have enough resources. If the resources right. are then provided by an right. international agreement. Sure. Okay. Well, and the example of the uh, market applied to the orphanage also raises a question in another domain, which is um, there are children in need of adoptive homes. By and large, markets are not allowed. There is not a market in babies for adoption. 
and yet some advocates of markets have suggested that a market would be an efficient way of allocating babies and that we could have a similar discussion about whether if it actually did lead more children to find homes, whether it would be objectionable. What do these examples illustrate? Well, they do involve questions about the moral limits of markets. But unlike a lot of questions we confront in politics today about justice and markets, they don't have only to do with maximizing utility because we're assuming in both of these cases that utility would increase in the sense that more refugees would be given asylum and that lives would be saved in the terrorist futures market and that entertainment would be generated by the death pools. So the objection, utilitarianism alone can't make sense of the moral hesitation. It's not clear that any rights are being violated in these cases. Assuming that the refugees are not mistreated but are given homes they wouldn't otherwise have but for the increase in the overall number of refugees accepted, it's not clear whose rights are being violated. Under the present system, as was pointed out, refugees are stuck in refugee camps. That's why they're refugees. And they are not able to pick and choose which country they go to. So it can't be that their rights are being violated. So insofar as there is a moral hesitation, nonetheless, it can't be captured by either utility or the freedom-slash-rights-based theory of justice. When people began to articulate the reasons for the creepiness or the moral hesitation, it had partly to do with this being the wrong way to value refugees, even if they're not mistreated. And the suggestion was also made that you shouldn't be able to sell off a responsibility, a global responsibility to look after refugees. So in order to decide the question that we've just begun to consider, whether this is a morally objectionable use of markets, we have to resolve the competing conceptions of the right way to value refugees. And we have to resolve the question whether there is a responsibility or a duty to accept some relatively high number of refugees such that commodifying it would be outsourcing or shucking off a responsibility rather than fulfilling it. And to sort those questions out, and in the case of the terrorist futures market or the death pools, we have to decide what is the right way, the proper way, to value human life. Is there some affront, some indignity that we inflict because we are taking pleasure in the wrong kind of thing, let's say in the death pool case? It reflects badly on our character. All of these considerations, which we would have to resolve if we were to sort out these questions as policy questions, take us onto the terrain, not of utility, not of freedom and fairness alone, but onto the terrain of how properly to value the various goods that are in question. And what count as the right sorts of pleasures to take? Is there something just disagreeable morally about encouraging or even allowing people to derive pleasure gambling on the lives of celebrities? 
All of which is to suggest that when it comes to the moral limits of markets, if we want to have a democratic debate about what goods should and should not be governed by market value and exchange, then we will be drawn unavoidably into this area that requires us to sort out the right way to value the goods that social institutions distribute. And that's a set of questions that force us back to an older understanding of justice than the ones that animate our politics today, utility on the one hand and freedom on the other. So here's, here's the conclusion I would draw from this, and then you'll tell me whether you think I'm right or wrong. A just society can't be achieved simply by maximizing utility or by securing freedom of choice and fairness. To achieve a just society, we have to reason together about the meaning of the good life and to create a public culture hospitable to the disagreements that will inevitably arise. Another way of putting this point is to say that justice is unavoidably, inescapably judgmental. Whether we're arguing about how to distribute flutes or about bailouts and bonuses or about terrorist futures markets or how to allocate military service or refugee quotas, questions of justice are bound up with competing notions of honor and virtue, pride and recognition, bound up in short with rival accounts of how properly to value goods. Justice is not only about the right way to distribute things, it is also about the right way to value things. And if that's the case, the content and the quality and the focus of our public debates about justice need to be enlarged to take account of rival conceptions of how to value the goods that we exchange or contemplate exchanging through the use of markets. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Michael. Well, uh, we've had one Q&A session, but basically it was Michael answering the, asking the questions and you providing the answers. Now's your opportunity uh, to reverse the process. We've got, a sh um, I think, about five, ten minutes for questions. So, over to you. Yes, the man in the yellow. against using the market is the fact that they find the market itself repugnant. But your conclusion is that we should value it, we should find a way to value the human life and the basic dignity of man. But to the same people, they might find the actual valuation of a human life difficult simply because it seems rather repugnant. Um, how, to, to a policymaker, that, that would be very difficult because if, if say, a human life is invaluable or of immense value. It leads on to an egalitarian point of view where we have to do 
the best for the worst people. How do you negotiate that with actual policymaking? Right. We have to decide whether the repugnance is well taken or not, or whether on reflection the people should get over it. And we have to figure that out. And that can be a very hard question. And there are people, pro-market advocates, who have, some of them, and I'm thinking mainly of academics who do this for a living, defend markets. Some of them have a very low threshold of repugnance. In fact, I once went to, one of ground zero in this view is the University of Chicago Economics Department. Or the law and economics colleagues there. And I went there once trying to see if I could find some purely voluntary exchange that they would find or admit to finding repugnant enough to ban. And so I came armed with an arsenal, not just easy ones like terrorist futures markets and death pools. Even death pools, they would say, oh, that's fine. Voluntary exchange. But I have some tougher ones that I didn't feel I needed to wheel out for this group. But here was one. Actually, two of the leading thinkers in this area, the ardent defenders of free markets and voluntary exchange, are Gary Becker, a Nobel Prize winning economist at the University of Chicago, and Richard Posner, who is the founder of the law and economics movement, applying these ideas, free market ideas, to law. And so I started them out with private prisons. And then we broke it down by function. They had no objection to private prisons. Broke it down by function. Well, to have the food service, the catering, privately supplied in a prison, that doesn't really seem terribly troubling, even to me. And what about the health clinic? Maybe a closer call, but in principle, the health clinic could be outsourced. What about the prison guards? Well, provided they were governed by rules that were set down by public authorities and didn't abuse the prisoners, the mere fact that they were hired from private companies wouldn't seem objectionable. And so we went, what about the warden, and so on. Well, make a long story short, I found one case that was the hardest one I could muster on the for-profit prisons. In Texas, they have capital punishment. Now, take the job of the guy who pulls the switch on the electric chair. If from the standpoint of market reasoning, the same logic that argues for privatizing the other function in the prison would argue for privatizing that function, the executioner. But imagine how that market would work in practice in Texas. Now, you would put it out for bid. The standard hourly wage would probably, people would do it for less than that, less and less. Imagine the auction. I suppose you could do it on eBay or something. But what would happen, chances are what would happen is some people would do it for free. But they would be under bid, I suspect, by people who would pay for the privilege. Now, that payment, that payment could go to improve the quality of the health care in the prison. 
or to make conditions more humane on utilitarian grounds and on market grounds, there would be no reason to object in principle to auctioning off the privilege, as it would very well be, for pulling the lever on the electric chair. I put that to them. One of the two of them said, fine with me. I won't say. <laughs> I won't, maybe shouldn't identify them beyond this. And the, other, and the other of the two said, no, that, that would be terrible. <laughs> and so my eyes lit up and I said, okay, why? Why? Because here I thought I you know, could ride back whatever that principle was. And he said, grudgingly, for your sorts of reasons, he said. <laughs> I'm sorry. The, the, the one libertarian... Um, uh, barrier I've encountered in asking people a similar sort of question. Uh, the libertarians get upset about the idea of buying and selling votes. I've tried that one too. And you found even Becker and uh, Postman? No, what they do there is they insist, they say they're against buying and selling votes, but when I ask for the reason, it's not because there is some intrinsic, something intrinsically wrong. It's that there are externalities effect on third parties. If you, you know, if if you want one thing and I want another, and we pay off the third voter, then it's conceivable. Let's say it's you who buy them off. Then my side loses, even though that third voter might have voted for me. But I think that's a bad argument for the following reason. Suppose. We had no market in votes, but suppose you persuaded my voter to vote for you. He changed his vote. There, would, there is an externality to third parties to political persuasion, but we don't ban political persuasion on the grounds that there's an external effect. Therefore, that can't be the reason, that can't be the grounds for rejecting a market in votes. We're still haggling over that one. Some libertarians, of course, don't want any votes at all. That's another. Um, there was a, there. Yes. Professor uh, Sandor, I just want to ask. You mentioned at the very end, judgments are just had to be judgmental at a certain yes. point. Um, for me, that was a question: Who has the right to judge ultimately another human being when we're all guilty, as it were, of the imperfection yes. of our human nature? Yes. The, the sin of imperfection, if you. Right. Good. Okay. Yes. Um, and that leads me to the myth of Sisyphus. In, in, um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this myth uh, from the ancient Greeks, who I believe had it all right all along, when they said that we are all in the absence of an ultimate deity or somebody who just knows better than all of us and can tell us just simply what to do in our imperfect lives. We're all doomed to just rolling the stone of our lives up and down, up and down the hill, and we're just involved in the struggle, and the struggle itself is the meaning of our human condition or our human right. existence, and nothing Good. more, nothing less. What all do right. you think about that? Do you Great agree question. All right, and maybe this is as good a place as any if I can manage to answer that question to end. Um, if I, did everyone hear the question? I say that justice has an inescapably judgmental aspect to it. And the worry is, who are we to judge other human beings? We're all imperfect, after all. And isn't there something... Who's doing the judging? 
And isn't there a kind of hubris even in judging given our own imperfections? The short answer is in democratic societies, we collectively as democratic citizens offer our judgments and argue about them. Don't take them as fixed and given once and for all, but engage with our fellow citizens in the particular judgments that might be at stake in this policy or that. I don't mean to suggest that we should be judgmental in a global wholesale way of deciding justice by determining all things considered the moral worth of a particular person's life. I have in mind more local judgments as for example local but still important maybe even faithful I think we do have to judge to go back to the case of the financial crisis and the bankers how valuable how worthwhile is the social contribution that bankers make to the common good and should the compensation of bankers or anybody else be brought more closely in line with the value of the social contribution they make. Now that's not judging the soul of the investment banker or the moral worth of her life as taken as a whole from a God's eye point of view. But it is making a judgment. Often the judgments are comparative between the, the moral importance of the contribution the banker makes or the hedge fund manager by comparison with let's say a school teacher and if the compensation and social rewards and prestige are vastly out of line with the contributions they make to the, to the common good that would be a reason collectively democratically to try to reorganize systems of compensation and reward and social prestige to bring those honors and recognitions and compensations more closely into line with what we judge, here's the judgmental part, what we judge to be their contribution to the common good. And by that standard, I would say the school teachers should make more, relatively speaking, than the hedge fund managers. That is relative to what they make now. That's a judgment, not passing judgment on their souls but instead engaging as democratic citizens in debate about the um, contribution to the common good. Thank you. Well, thank you. Well, uh, I think there's one area where we can all make a very firm judgment. Um, one area of our life, and that concerns the uh, excellence of Michael Sandel's lectures. Uh, so, Michael, thank you very much indeed. Um, a wonderful... Uh, okay.